0: I wanna talk tonight about three kinds of intention and hopefully clarify a little uh, how we use that term because I must admit we often use it both in English but specifically in Buddhist teachings a little vaguely or a little sloppily, meaning different things at different times. But this quality or mental factor of intention is so key, for anything that we wish to do in our lives, but particularly on this path of practice, intention is essential. It's essential in the Buddha's understandings of how the path unfolds. And as the Tibetans say, everything rests on the tip of intention or motivation. And intention shapes our actions and shapes how we respond to and experience the world. So it's this very fundamental factor of mind that we can begin to understand and work within our mindfulness practice. And some of you may know this um, modern-day prayer. I've heard a number of people share this, so it may be familiar to you. Dear Lord, so far today I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, I haven't lost my temper, I haven't been greedy or grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. So I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. (laughs) And from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help. (laughs) So this is in the field that I'm talking about, about how we shape, how we live in the world, how we are in the world. And the power and function of mindfulness It's bent different ways for every person who speaks with it. Uh, The power and the function of our practice of mindfulness is that it brings this choice point, this potential, this space, this gap of clear seeing when we can make a choice. And this is really where free will functions, the capacity for free will. And so we can see that intention shapes the mind stream, and therefore the Buddha would say, what he called kama, kama as intentional action. And he, the Buddha said, whatever one frequently dwells upon and thinks about, that will become the inclination of the mind. So these repeated intentions, this repeated shaping of the mind, actually steers the direction of the mind and therefore our experience in the world. And so this practice of mindfulness, its very purpose or function, is to develop clear seeing clarity. And then out of that clarity, the possibility of wise response. So it's a skillful means. We pay close attention moment to moment to our experience so we can learn from it. Again, mindfulness, as powerful it is, isn't the end of our path of practice. It's so we can see clearly And what we do in this seeing, clearly, a big thing, a big way this works is we deconstruct our experience. If we kind of try to take in everything all at once, you know, feeling, thinking, seeing, it's overwhelming, right? And just the mind itself can be overwhelming. And so a big part of this practice is kind of this deconstruction where we look at the component nature of experience. So we might talk about, you know, look at the six sense doors and how there's only ever six things happening, you know, often a few of them at once, but just this kind of clarity about what our direct experience is. Why we use things like that acronym of RAIN for recognition, acceptance, intimacy, or nature, the translations I like, to help us get closer to, understand what's happening in particularly the emotional world, the world of the hindrances, and why the Buddha gave us all of these great lists. As you know, he was a great list maker, like the five aggregates, which we'll probably give a talk about these uh, places in our experience where we tend to identify and cling. He said, look at this, divide your experience up in this way. We talk about dependent origination. There's 12 links that show the the cyclical nature from ignorance to becoming, leading on to further suffering and further ignorance. Even the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self are also ways to look directly at experience and kind of begin to deconstruct and understand what's happening at all these different levels. So this is one of the functions of mindfulness, this deconstruction, this clarification simplification of experience, so we can begin to see clearly. This is really the purpose. Because it's only when something comes into awareness and we see it clearly, somewhat clearly, you know, we don't have to see perfectly clearly, but somewhat clearly, that we can actually begin to work skillfully with that experience. And if it's a difficult experience, a suffering one, a hindrance, begin the transformation process with it. So, the same process is true of this mental factor of intention. We can bring it in to the field of our mindfulness and begin to work more skillfully with it. And I want to talk, as I said, about these three kinds of intention and how they work on different time frames. The most kind of immediate is the one we've already given as a meditation instruction, cetana is the Pali word. We usually translate it as intention, could be seen uh, also translated as volition, but that's a very momentary, moment to moment kind of intention. Then the next level is aditana, And we usually translate that as resolution or determination and it's kind of what shapes the larger forces that shape the moment to moment intention. And then the third level, samasankapa, wise intention, is a path factor. It's a second of the eightfold path factors after right, in, right view or right understanding. And so it's shaped by right understanding. And these are these larger intentions that the Buddha said, please cultivate if you want to walk this path. And they're the intentions towards um, renunciation, non-ill will, and non-harming, so bigger picture kind of intention. And what I'm wanting to point to tonight is how understanding how each three of these levels work and support each other, and that we're always kind of engaged with one of them at some level or another, and that they actually are all important and necessary if we're gonna walk this path and be transformed by it. So you could see them as a triangle, but they're not rigid or fixed. It's kind of like a stretchy triangle. Sometimes they're all operating together. Sometimes one is more predominant, but they're definitely all necessary in our practice. Is this loud enough? Can people hear at the back? Yes. Um, Thanks. So starting with the the first level of intention, Chaitana. As I said, usually intention or volition, it's kind of this urge to do. Even though it's a mental factor, it's often very quick and very subtle, but we can feel it almost physically, especially as we've been talking about as we're shifting uh, gross movements of the body. And so we can practice with this in meditation. Every movement of the body we make is preceded by the intention to move. If intention wasn't there, we would just be inert. So it's really talking about volitional intention, and that's the definition of karma in Buddhist understanding. Karma means volitional activity, actions done with intention. And the Buddha actually changed the definition or the understanding of what karma is. There was an understanding Of karma in the world as he began teaching, but it was very fatalistic, deterministic. There wasn't free will. It was really, you know, the will of the gods and and other forces beyond our control and a very kind of deterministic understanding about action. But the Buddha changed it and he said, volition is key, intention is key. That's what determines and shapes the mind and heart. And that What's ma- that is what makes the shifting of karma possible. We'll probably give a whole talk on karma, so I'm not going to go into it in detail. But just really important to get this this emphasis on intention as being key in uh, how k- karma is developed. So that you know, just very simple um, understanding. You know, actions with done at, with, out of intention have karmic repercussions. One's done without intention, simple example, you're walking in the dark or you're not looking in a certain direction, you step on an ant or an insect. You didn't intend to, you didn't know it was there. It said that action doesn't have karmic repercussions because there wasn't intention to harm in that action. But this can become tricky because we don't want to use our sense of good intention as a get out of jail free card. Because as we really start to look at our minds and hearts, we can see that we're often, if not always, acting out of some level of delusion. It's just the nature of these human minds. And we'll we'll have mixed intentions, mixed motivations. So we have to also be aware, even as much as we are aware of the power of intention, that we can have impact harmful impact out of good intention. And so I've really become more aware of that as I've deepened my um, care in this area, that it's something that we have to uh, be aware of. Because as I said, we can have mixed intentions, unconscious intentions. We can have unconscious biases that cause us to act in certain ways to certain people, and we're not even aware of it. But It affects both the action, but it certainly affects how our actions land for someone else. And so then the intention comes back into play as we respond to perhaps feedback feedback we might get about how how our actions might have impacted someone else. Someone might say, you know, when you said or did that, it really was hurtful. And like, oh, I didn't intend that, that wasn't... But as I said, that's not a get out of jail free card to say I didn't intend any harm. How we respond to that feedback and that the sensitivity we bring to acknowledging that we may have harmed someone unintentionally is part of the karmic cycle. This becomes particularly important as we um, engage and practice with live in communities with diverse people in them, diverse backgrounds, ethnicities, racial uh, identification, sexual identifications, abilities, economic backgrounds, we start to realize that we don't have all the answers or the way we think things are, the way we see the world may not necessarily be the way others are, are feeling or experiencing the world. That the way we always do things is the right way or the way uh, we know the right and wrong way to do things. This is really part of acknowledging this play in this field of intention and impact. And so we have to bring a lot of sensitivity and humility as we're working in this field of intention, and certainly also a lot of compassion, just willing to acknowledge harm as it happens, and willing to learn from our mistakes as we will make them. And so huge possibility for waking up in this area of social conditioning, social constructs, and how we impact each other through our actions of speech and and, um, body. So we start to see that nothing happens without intention. Without intention, we would be inert. There would be no life, no movement. So intention on this level is happening all the time. It's said to be um, a universal factor of mind, meaning it's happening in every mind moment. Some form of intention is keeping this whole thing going, from the grosser movements to the more subtle ones. Even thoughts have some intentionality around them. Bringing this more into consciousness is a huge part of the empowering and the um, expanding capacity of this mindfulness practice. Because the intentions are there, but if we're not realizing them, they're just fueled by our conditioned habits, often our neuroses, by greed, aversion, and delusion. So bringing them into consciousness, being more aware of them, really is huge. And as I said, when it rises to the level of consciousness, then we can begin to have some skillful relationship to, some determination, is this skillful or not? Will it be harmful or not, beneficial or not? We can actually have that choice point that I spoke about. And so intention can operate on a a very moment-to-moment level, but those moments-to-moment, they connect and they build up into what could be a lifetime of intentions out of those small moments-to-moment-to-moment. Bonnie spoke the other day when she was talking about the hindrances, these hindering factors of mind. What do they motivate you to do? It's a really interesting thing to look at as we practice with the hindrances. What's what's the urge to do out of this experience of sensual desire or ill will or restlessness? So we start to track these motivating factors. So we can have Unskillful intentions out of unskillful experiences or difficult experiences, or we can have skillful intentions. And I spoke yesterday when I led the standing meditation about particularly looking at intention in these grosser movements of the body that we might make. When we're standing, when do we choose to sit? This has been really interesting for me to look at. I, I like to exercise, and sometimes I'll be running walking really vigorously and then the terrain, you know, goes from doable to steeper or whatever. And there comes some point where the mind just kind of collapses and says, I can't do this anymore, but I really train myself to notice that moment and really pay attention. Is this moment that different physically than the moment before where I was still running or standing or walking? what is it that what was that tipping point that caused the mind to collapse and want to give up want to stop want to slow down often when i look it's a it's a it's a just a clearer uh, connecting to the vedana and sometimes there's you know unpleasant vedana when the body is being stressed in some way but it's not that different than the moment before but somehow the mind has just latched onto that and i can really feel if the the mindfulness slips, there's a collapsing, and we just stop, sit, lie down, whatever it is the next the easiest thing to do. Really interesting to look at that. When you're walking, when you go out to your walking path, what motivates you to take that first step? Is it just habit? You're in your walking path, you walk? Or can you bring some clarity? To that decision point. And I think it may have been Winnie who gave the instructions. If you really start to play with this, you'll often not do anything because you actually see the intention arising and then just vanishing as you pay attention to it. It's not, does not rise to the level of, of moving you into action? And so really interesting to play. Again, where's that tipping point where we move into action? Sometimes it's just kind of frustration, enough already, I've got to do some walking here. But at other times, especially if you're doing something like, say, standing, where, you know, you could choose to stand for 15 minutes, half an hour, 40 minutes, an hour. When does the mind say enough? And why does it make that choice? Really to check in to the Vedana, to the physical sensations. So it's really a, a good place to practice because as we can tune in on this more physical level, it starts to open the possibility that the mindfulness will be there on the more subtle le- levels of other kinds of movements, of reaching out to grasp something, get a second helping, um, you know, movements in the mind and heart, all preceded by intention. So we start with where it's more accessible, but ultimately, We want to bring this as much into our awareness as we can. So the next level of intention is aditana, the Pali word. Again, we usually translate it as resolve or determination. It's actually one of the paramis, these uh, list of ten qualities that the bodhisattva-to-be is said to have developed on his way to awakening includes, you know, metta and generosity and truthfulness and equanimity and renunciation. Aditana or determination is a parami. But what's interesting about the paramis and this particular parami is it's necessary to develop all the others. Unless we have some sense of this quality of Aditana, this determination, these other qualities won't get developed. This persistence, this shaping of the mind and carrying out intention is what's necessary for us to actually deepen the paramis or anything that we undertake, this capacity or my, mental state of Aditana. So it, uh, Joseph spoke last night about virya. It's kind of related. It's the, it's the carrying through of the intention towards uh, movement. It's the endurance. Aditana is what got all of us here. Some sense that this is for our benefit and the well-being of others. Brought us to the retreat. It's what keeps us going. And as Bhikkhu Bodhi has that great thing, you know, only two things that are necessary to develop on this path, start and keep going, that's aditana. That's that sense of determination. So you can get a sense that we're all on a journey. We talk about the spiritual journey, really the heroine or the hero's journey that Joseph Campbell spoke about, this journey of exploration. And for all of us, this journey will have challenges. It'll have setbacks. It'll have tragedies. It'll have miracles. Will be supported and will be challenged on this journey. Aditana is what keeps us going through the obstacles, through the challenges. And there's nothing like a six week or a three month retreat to really strengthen this quality of Aditana or resolve. Because the Dharma hook really gets in in that way. And when we practice so sincerely for so long, so essential. To keep us going here. I know for me, I did my first retreat back in the early 80s. I was in India, you know, just with a backpack, open ended, you know, small amount of money, but enough to keep me going in India for some time. And uh, I'd been trying to learn meditation from a book. I had Jack Kornfield's Living Buddhist Masters. At that time, most of them were still alive. Now it's recently dead Buddhist Masters, but anyway. And I was trying to learn, I think, with the Mahasi Sayadar technique, which is quite a dry and intense technique from, a, from his chapter in that book. It wasn't going very well. So people just started saying, if you want to learn to meditate, go to SN Goenka retreat. Go to a Goenka retreat. So there was, I was living in McLeod Gunge in northern India. Um, And so I I kind of dabbled a bit in Tibetan uh, practice, but it was too complicated for me. I I couldn't quite find a way in. So I just made my way down. This retreat was in Jaipur. It was a whole adventure just getting there, because it's one of those things you do in India. I didn't register. I didn't know where the retreat was. Someone just said it's in Jaipur. So I just went. Jaipur is a huge town. Anyway, somehow I found the retreat. Um, And it was amazing. I had never heard teachings like this before, and I was clueless. I mean, I didn't, I'd never sat for 10 minutes before, let alone, you know, Joseph talked about these retreats, hour-long vow hours, and all I had to sit on was a towel, you know, I didn't have nice comfy zafus or anything. So it was incredibly arduous and painful, but something sunk in. I don't know what it was, I couldn't tell you what the teachings were, you know. He was actually there, so that was, you know, impressive. Um, And I had a couple of uh, personal meetings with him. Um, And I remember afterwards someone talking about being mindful outside the sittings. And I'm like, what? you meant to be mindful? (laughs) You know, I'd just sit and then go and, you know, spin out and do all kinds of things. I don't know what I was doing. I was clueless. But something (laughs) sunk in. And what I remember, the way I frame it is I heard or felt there was the possibility of not causing suffering. It wasn't so much that I wouldn't suffer, that, that I need not cause suffering to others. And that was a game changer for me, that that was even possible. I didn't imagine that I could do it, but just that it was possible. I wanted to know more. So I heard that uh, I spoke to people at the end of the retreat, people who'd done many retreats. And I remember one woman saying, oh, yeah, you know, I really love this. I try to do one or two retreats a year. And to myself, I'm like, pfft week, you know, one or two a year. I'm once a month, you know, 10 days, I'm just going to be on it. Like this is it. Of course, reality is it's not that easy. But from that retreat on, the major decisions of my life were basically shaped by how do I stay close to the dharma? How do I, how do I connect again with teachings, with teachers, with practice? And so when I left Asia, left India, went to England, um, I'd, got, I'd done a number of retreats after that in, in India, including one with Joseph, at, at, when he was teaching in Bodgaya, met Jack and Christopher Titmus. So um, wanted to go on retreat at, at Christopher and Christina's uh, retreat center, which was then called East Farmhouse. And so I wrote them a letter. This is in the early '80s. No internet. I didn't even have a phone number. you know, again, somehow wrote them a letter and said, "Can I come on retreat?" And my address was, uh, I forget, I think it was St. Paul's, Poster Restant London, you know. Anyone under 50 know what poster restant is? It's where you have to go get your letters. You have to kind of imagine in a month, where will I be that someone has time to write and me to collect? But I was in London, so I just used that address. And so I, got, I went to collect my mail and I got a letter saying, yes, there's a retreat starting this weekend. You can come, you know. Down to, it was in Wiley, Wiltshire. Like, fabulous. You know, I'd I'd been staying in this boarding house in London as cheap as I could find, you know, bunk beds, six people to a room kind of thing. So, headed off, had to get, you know, the tube and then a train and then a bus. And the bus just dropped me off on the side of the road. Literally, it was a field, there was nothing. And he said, Wiley is you know, over the field and over the stiles and down the path and by the stream and, uh, you know, in the distance. I couldn't see it, so I just had to head off. It was getting, you know, late afternoon, evening, head off to this place, um, just following this path. And, you know, I did come across the village of Wiley, had to ask around, where's his farmhouse? Someone told me it was on the edge of the village. So the relief at actually finding the place, it was a long, expensive day's journey, walk into um, this large uh, forecourt of this big old farmhouse and there was a man there working on a car, I remember this clearly, and he looked up at me with a very concerned look on his face and he said, you've come for the retreat, haven't you? And I said, yes, you know, like, is that a bad thing to have done? He said, you better go inside. I'm like, have they heard about me, you know? Uh, what, what is it? And I go in there, and there's a lot of hustle and bustle going on. And everyone, you know, when you walk into a room, everyone sort of stops and looks at you. And they all did that and said, oh, you better sit down. What's going on? So I sit down, and they said, that letter we wrote to you didn't have a date on it. The retreat started last weekend, and it's actually finishing today. And not only that, it's not a center like IMS, it's this tiny place, you know, it's not just an old farmhouse. So not only that, usually, you know, there are people here and you can sometimes stay, but we're just between managers. The current managers are leaving, there was just two of them. So we're closing the whole place up for two weeks, you'll have to leave. There's the, the, we're, we're all leaving today, it's, it's done. I was devastated, you know, I'd had all of this excitement, anticipation of being on retreat, being in a dharma field, you know, connecting with people, made this long, expensive journey, didn't have a clue where I'd go, you know, in this little tiny village, didn't know anyone, didn't have that much money. You know that feeling? Just the bottom drops out. I was so desolate, and they were all busy, you know, they were packing up and cleaning and organizing and rushing around. And, you know, they said, here, have a cup of tea, sit down. I was like, oh, okay. You know, trying to think, what, who could I call? Where? Could, you know, again, it's hard to even find where, there's no, you know, trip advisor at that point about where to go stay. Um, so I was just kind of hanging out, you know, looked around the place a bit. they were all busy. Finally, someone called me and said, Sally, come back into the kitchen. We want to talk to you. And a few of them sat around these people who were sort of part of the organizing committee. And they said, you know, we've been talking about you. And we were packing up the whole place. Everything was going to be shut down, turn everything off, close down. But you seem, I don't know, forget what they said. You seem okay. I was a total stranger. I said, Instead of closing the place up, we're going to let you stay here for two weeks until the new people come. So they basically gave me the keys. To me, it was the palace. You know, I'd been staying in India in these tiny rooms, often on straw mattresses and things like that, and here was this beautiful old English farmhouse. It was such a gift of generosity and trust, you could say naivete, I mean, they didn't know me from anything. But they all left and gave me this place to live in with a stocked pantry and an agar stove and, and, you know, food. And I could walk into the village and get my, you know, simple needs. It was like heaven to have this place. So it was just so interesting that... And because I was there and they got to know me and made that decision about me staying there, I really did get connected to some of them. So when I left there... You know, I tried to convince them that I should stay, but uh, no, they didn't need another manager. I went and met up with my boyfriend at the time, and he wanted to travel here and travel there. We traveled around. And then I got a letter saying, you know, we need a manager. Do you want to come? And I just l- looked at my boyfriend at the time and said, I'm going. <laughs> I'm going. And he's like, don't you want to go to Czechoslovakia? Or do you want to go to Italy? I said, no, I want to go back. To that place and, and work and, and live. And so I did, and that's where I met Guy. He came on retreat. And then, you know, that period ended. We didn't, we just, he was a yogi. I didn't, just got to meet him then. Um, and then I, that period ended. So I had to f- figure out what to do next. Another friend wanted to go to Ireland. We were making plans to go to Ireland. Then I got an invitation to go live in a meditation community. Actually, start a meditation community in in Southwest England, in Devon, um, around Christopher Titmus. And it turned out the guy and I were the first two people to move into that community. So that is where we got together. And so those decisions completely shaped my life. How do I keep you know, I had to say no to friends, no to this past boyfriend. No, I want to stay, be where the Dharma is. When I came to the States, we lived in England for five years. I started volunteering at Spirit Rock. Then I got a part-time job. Then I got a full-time job. Then I became executive director. Then I moved into the teaching role. Again, because of that decision. How do I stay close to the Dharma? That has shaped my life and it's been the greatest blessing in my life. All out of that clarity of intention and aditana, how do I keep shifting in that direction? So it can be huge when we get clear enough that this is what we want to do. So this quality of aditana we need to use really skillfully. Resolve. When we do metta practice, They're basically aditanas. When you say, may I be happy? May I be peaceful? May I be healthy and at ease? They're resolves. They're aditanas, determinations. And I love the way they're framed, this may I. It's not an affirmation, I am. It's not an order, you will be. It's really this invitation and this training or direction of the mind and heart towards kindness, towards well-being for self or others. So we can use that kind of practice here, outside of the metta, to even make the intention at the beginning of a sitting or a walking. May I be mindful for this period? We don't try to extend it, you know, may I be mindful for the whole retreat or mindful forever, but just for this short time may mindfulness arise in me, may mindfulness be supported or cultivated, can be really helpful because we need this clarity of intention, this kind of intention, because of all the difficulties that we'll face. This practice goes against the stream, as the Buddha said, the stream of greed, aversion and delusion, the cultural conditioning that we all have, going against the grain, going against what's easy. So we need this force of resolution, of determination to help us keep going through the difficult times. There's a lovely verse from the Terragata. This is the verses of the elder monks. There's an equivalent book of teachings from the Terragata, the nuns, the book of the elder nuns. But this one is from the Terragata about determination. It's too cold. Too hot, too late in the evening, people who say this, shirking their work, the meditation basically, the moment passes them by, whoever regards cold and heat as no more than grass, doing their duties won't fall away from ease. With my chest, I push through wild grasses, spear grass, ribbon grass, rushes, cultivating a secluded heart. Just that sense of whatever the conditions, keeping moving forward with the practice and how powerful that is. The Buddha talked about this quality of aditana, and he said there are these four great resolves. The resolve for wisdom, the resolve for truth, the resolve for generosity, and the resolve for peace. One should not neglect wisdom. One should preserve the truth. One should cultivate generosity and should train in peace. These are the four great resolves. So again, this quality, this capacity for bringing something into heart and mind and really following it through, the second level of intention. And then the last level, the really the highest or the biggest picture in this map is sammasankhapa wise intention as a path factor. And this word sama, is precedes all of the path factors and we usually translate it as wise or right. And it's not right as in right or wrong, but right as in onward leading, beneficial, skillful, wholesome. So it's the second factor in the eightfold path out of right view or right understanding. So right understanding which is seen clearly, Four Noble Truths, Three Characteristics, etc., shapes these intentions. If we have right view, this is how one will train and act in the world, out of right intention. So they're kind of dharma values to align with. Again, and this is what the Buddha said, these are the dharma values we should bring to heart and mind and align with. So they're the values or the intentions towards renunciation, towards non-ill will and non-harming. And it's interesting, renunciation is also a kind of um, refraining from, but they're stated in the negative, non-ill will, non-harming. And it's really interesting to us that that doesn't often seem very kind of uplifting or motivating, but I think it's actually a really skillful teaching tool because the possibility for restraint is always possible. To restrain from acting out of ill will, to not act out of ill will, to do non-harming. Once we have that as a kind of basic attitude or fund foundation, then it's possible to cultivate them into their positive. So non-ill will, when it's cultivated, becomes goodwill, or metta. Non-harming becomes compassion, but we start from this always available, always accessible um, restraint. Pema Chodron says, as long as we don't want to be honest and kind with ourselves, we will always be infants. Gradually, without any agenda except to be honest and kind, we assume responsibility for being here in this unpredictable world, in this unique moment, in this precious human body. It's kind. Of, she's almost saying it's a kind of way of growing up, of maturing. So these three qualities the Buddha said were key as intentions to develop. The first, the intention to renunciation. Someone may give more of a complete talk on this at some point, so I don't want to say too much about it. But just to emphasize that we, when we hear this word renunciation, as the Buddha said about himself, our hearts don't leap up. You know, oh great, more renunciation. But true understanding of renunciation is as a source for happiness and contentment, not as a penance, not just about giving stuff up, but really exploring what brings true well-being, ease, contentment, simplicity, I saw this uh, cartoon a while ago with Hagar the horrible. He's a Viking, you know, and he has horns, and he's always a little chubby. He's a little on the greedy side, you might say. He likes to eat, and uh, I, I keep I collect as you know whenever I see cartoons about meditation. And there's a subgenre called the guru cartoon, the guru meditation cartoon. So this is a combination of Hagar and the guru subgenre of cartoons. So. In this, there's four frames. The first one, Hagar is climbing up a very steep mountain. In the first frame, you see him going up, laboring away. And in the second frame, you see a very wise-looking sage. It's always a man, of course, with the white beard and the loincloth and, you know, the archetypal triangular mountains with a little bit of snow on them, sitting on the top by a cave. And Hagar says to the sage, Oh, great sage, please teach me the secret to happiness. In the third frame, the sage is replying, simplicity, self-restraint, and renunciation. And in the fourth frame, you can see Hagar pausing and saying, is there anyone else up here I can speak to? (laughs) We don't want to hear it, you know, that these qualities of letting go actually are for our own well-being. But if we truly reflect, and retreats are a wonderful way to reflect on this because we live so simply here. I mean, we're taken care of living much, much better than a lot of people on this planet, but it's relatively simple. Um, so what do we need? I saw this article a while ago in Parade magazine, which we used to get in the Sunday paper, but doesn't come anymore for some reason. Um, and it was entitled, Why We Gave Away Our Home. And it told the story of a family, middle-class family somewhere in America, who got what they called their dream home, the American dream. And it was a huge house. It probably meant that each of the kids had their own bedroom. Everyone had their own bedroom. There was probably a den and a games room and a dining room and this huge house. But what they said is they lost touch with each other. They were all so separate. And the daughter, as she lived in this house, got really upset when she saw the disparity between how they were living and how many other people were living. So the mother said to her, what are you willing to give up? Your house? Your room? The daughter, Hannah, said yes to both. So after talking it over with the family, they decided to sell their house and move to one that was half its size and price and donate the difference to charity. So they spent a year doing this and talking as a family, what did they want to do with that money? And they learned so much about each other and their values and what was important, and they chose the Hunger Project, which works with villages in Africa, Asia, and South America and helps them move from poverty to self-reliance and they said it was the best move they ever made. They felt more connected with each other, they, they understood each other, and it transformed their family life from simplifying, from giving up. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, Real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so they no longer bind us. So it's really just a shift in perspective and one that's often for our well-being as we give up that sense of grasping that so often shapes our intentions. So renunciation is the first of these wise intentions. The second one is non-ill will, which when turned positive becomes goodwill or metta. And so as I said, we can start, always start, with the possibility of not acting out of ill will, even if there is ill will in the mind, having that sense of restraint that we don't act out of it. Because as we've said in the teachings, you're I'm sure you're aware, you can't force the metta feeling. You can't force compassion, you can't force metta. But if you make the determination of not acting out of ill will, of working skillfully with ill will if it's in the mind, then acceptance can grow, and out of acceptance, the quality of metta can really develop. And one of the main places I think it's helpful to develop this quality of metta, this intention towards non-ill will or kindness, is towards ourselves. So many people struggle from a lack of self-care or self-love. It's one of the Real sources of suffering. I've seen so many people I talk to, and I've certainly seen the pain of it for myself, of really um, suffering from judgment and criticism towards oneself. And so to really create the intention to develop metta for oneself is a wholesome and skillful intention to create. So what would that look like? You know, we've started that practice here. Many of you do this practice to develop a sincere sense of kindness and well-wishing. What kind of stories would you have to let go of? What kind of beliefs or sense of limitation would you have to let go of to truly develop that? It really can be a huge part of our practice and not a kind of tangential path, but really very central. How do I truly love and accept myself just as I am? How do I find that sense of well-being and care that is the foundation, needs to be the foundation of how we live and practice? So, because this is so key, again, someone may give more of a talk on this because it's so important. There are many great books to read about this. But we need to look at this tendency of mind, this judging voice that says, you're not okay, you're not good enough. And one of the things I've seen, one of the reasons we keep perpetuating it is is that voice has a hook in it, some kind of pleasantness that we get uh, ensnared by and believe. And that's what keeps perpetuating And If there wasn't some pleasantness there, we wouldn't keep perpetuating it. We're not s- completely stupid. So how does it serve us, this judging voice that says we're not, we're not good enough, we're not okay? It feels like the kind of the voice of wisdom, right? Knowing right from wrong. It is. It does serve to kind of protect us and help us, um, sense of safety, keeping us out of trouble. But for most of us, it's gotten really distorted. It's gotten really... Um, uh, uh, out of balance. And so we can judge ourselves negatively because we're kind of thinking we're ag- agreeing with the authority figures that we grew up with or from our school or, or the culture society in some way. Um, it, it justifies hiding or not trying, a sense of diminishment. We can sort of hide behind that and not actually manifest in the world we have to start to look at this tendency of mind. And one of the simple but powerful tools is to see the judgments for what they are. They're just a few thoughts in the mind, a blip of energy in the mind. We've spoken a lot about bringing mindfulness to thoughts. This is a key area that we have to pay attention to. What is actually going on with these beliefs? One book that I've read that I found helpful was by Byron Brown called Soul Without Shame. And he says, the only real alternative to self-judgment is knowing the truth about who you are. If you have a deep belief that you are worthless, you must discover where that belief came from and why you believe it to be true. Once you know deep inside you with a direct and felt sense that you have inherent value, and are fully acceptable to yourself, then you will free yourself from the need for positive judgment and approval from others and from your own judge. So meditation can be a huge avenue for exploring this, the conditioned nature of these beliefs and how to un- or decondition them. And it can be hugely transformative to do this work. So powerful. So this possibility of non-ill will towards oneself, metta, goodwill, towards oneself. And then the last of the three wise intentions that can shape our practice, shape our minds, is that of harmlessness, non-harming. The Pali word, I've always loved it, ahimsa, non-harming, to live a life of non-harming basically following the precepts. The first five precepts that we've been taking, as we've said, they're the precepts of non-harming. And with that following of the precepts, we give the gift to others of fearlessness. They don't have to fear us. We know we'll take care of them. We won't hurt them. But it gives ourselves a gift of freedom from remorse, the bliss of blamelessness. And this is huge. If any of you have sat here and had old memories come up of things you said or or did that hurt someone else, you know how painful that is in the space of meditation. As we refine our intentions and our actions and live more from this place of non-harming, the mind can really settle down. And this is huge for deepening in our meditation practice. Albert, as Albert Einstein said, the ideals which have lighted my way and time after time given me new courage to face life cheerfully have been kindness, beauty, and truth. Living a life of kindness, non-harming. And so the positive expression is compassion. Dalai Lama is the bodhisattva of compassion, always has good things to say about it. He says, I have found that the greatest degree of inner tranquility comes from the development of love and compassion. The more we care for the happiness of others, the greater is our own sense of well-being. Cultivating a close, warm-hearted feeling for others automatically puts the mind at ease. It is the ultimate source of success in life. And he also says just very simply, be kind whenever possible, but it's always possible. And that's part of this intention, it's always possible, always possible. So these three levels or types of intention are all necessary in this path. As I said, to do anything in life, but particularly if we want to cultivate this path of practice, The three are necessary. Chetana, the uh, moment-to-moment, volitional actions. aditana, resolve, determination. It's kind of the engine that shapes and and keeps the whole thing going. And then this big picture of samasankhapa. What do we let our lives be shaped by? What do we hold as important? What are the Dharma values that we keep coming back to and using as our yardstick, as our guiding lights as we practice and develop? And, And so that one is in some ways the most important because it's the biggest. The others come out of that, but they're all cycling through. It's kind of like, you know, those Rube Goldberg machines where the, all the, the ball has to roll down ladders and open doors and go through things. If, if one aspect doesn't work, the whole thing falls apart. All three are necessary. So this is, again, why mindfulness is so important. We can bring clarity of knowing to these different levels of our experience we can start to see how they're conditioned and the more we emphasize the wholesome qualities, the skillful intentions, they continue to shape um, future actions and experiences. And even as I say that, there's also, you could say, an impersonal nature to them. Out of causes and conditions, these future experiences happen. But the very power of this practice is this constant opportunity for clear seeing and wise choice or wise response. That's the fundamental um, process that we need to keep on refreshing and connecting with. As Sharon Salzberg says, By making an effort to notice our intentions with honesty and clarity, we gain a great deal of freedom... If we take the time to pay quiet attention, perhaps through meditational contemplation, we may develop a completely different understanding of why we do the things we do, and a new perspective on how to trust that we've done the best we can. When we develop the habit of noticing our intentions, we have have a much better compass with which to navigate our lives. We learn to cast a glance at our motivation before we speak or act, which frees us to live the life we want. Live the life we want, shaped by these intentions. Many of you have probably seen the movie Groundhog Day, one of the best Buddhist movies there is. If you haven't seen it, it's about a man, a weatherman, who goes to a small town to report on something and somehow gets trapped in this time warp where he repeats every day over and over again and at first it drives him crazy and then he tries to manipulate his experience to you know get sex get this woman that he's fallen in love with he learns the piano he does all these different things he tries to kill himself he gets so frustrated with this and you know you know a movie it's just an hour and a half or 2 hours um, but this repetition of these days goes over and over and over. And everyone else is just living the same day, and he's interacting with them in all these different ways. And Harold Ramis, who wrote, uh, directed it, the movie and wrote the screenplay, is basically a Buddhist. And he, when he was asked, how many times does Bill Murray repeat that day? He gave some different answers, but basically it was his idea of how long it would take. Because what happens, I should say, what happens is the day stays the same. He gets stuck in this loop until he lives a day fully out of love, compassion, and kindness, and respect. When he does that, he wakes up and the day has changed. So someone asked Harold Rabins, how long was that? And he gave lots of different answers. At first he said 10,000 years. He said, that's how long in Buddhism it takes to move from one plane to another. And then he said, I don't know, maybe 10 years. And he said, no, that's too short, 30 or 40 years. So basically 12,000 days. He lived that loop until he transformed enough that he lived a day completely motivated by love, compassion, non-harming, and respect. It's a great teaching for us. Any familiarity with that sense of looping (laughs) here on retreat? Luckily we do know that it will end, but really it's when the mind and heart transforms that we start to step out. I talked in my talk the other day about these cycles of samsara, this samsaric existence. But this possibility of transforming the mind and heart is what the Buddha said was possible. And we shape it moment to moment, we shape it through our determination, our perseverance, and we shape it with our understanding of the potential and the direction of this path to greater freedom, more happiness, more wisdom, compassion, and kindness. That's the direction it goes. So let's just let the words settle into silence. So again, thank you for your attention. It's about half hour before the last formal sit of the day with chanting. We said Anna has very kindly uh, agreed to come lead the chanting so we're very happy that she can do that. And maybe if you haven't been coming, this is the day that somehow the moment to moment intention keeps you walking and upright. (laughs) You have the determination to come to the sitting and then you share the chant of goodwill of metta. To end the day with, so may the three factors of intention support you in your practice and perhaps bring you back here at nine o'clock. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.